Welcome to this week's Infection Control Matters, uh, and it's Brett and I who are going to be discussing a paper on this particular occasion, and this is a paper published um, just a couple of weeks ago, early March in 2021, in the Journal of Hospital Infection. It's a paper from uh, Jonah Sadien and Stefan Harbath, Marguerite Voss and colleagues, including Andreas Vidmer, uh, looking at practical recommendations for routine cleaning and disinfection procedures in healthcare. Uh, and Brett, you were interested in this paper, so you want to kick us off with what, what uh, piqued your interest in this paper? Yeah, thanks, Martin. And hello, everyone. Thanks for joining. Um, yeah, look, this wasn't, I guess I'm a little bit biased because I, I, I'm going to choose some papers, obviously, that I find a little bit more interesting. The reason I found this one interesting is because I've got a tendency to like cleaning related matters when it comes to infection prevention and control. And the reason I like this paper is I thought it was just a really nice introduction and summary to the to the practical elements of what do you do in terms of cleaning in your relevant healthcare setting. And I think this paper is not just relevant necessarily to hospitals, but also to other sectors, including aged care. And, you know, we, we see a lot of research in a lot of areas of infection control, and it's hard to cut through what am I actually meant to do? Or where do I start um, when it comes to a sort of a cleaning program? And I thought this paper um, was a really nice overview of the issues and the potential approaches you might consider in thinking about a cleaning program for your institution. I mean, it's a really uh, readable and accessible paper, not just for the specialists. I know it's published in a in a specialist infection control journal, but actually. It, this is applicable to a much wider audience, isn't it? It's very well written and it, it's very logical in the structure as well. I, I, I agree, Martin. I think you know you could give this to an environmental services cleaning manager um, or, or someone involved in health policy in your institution and, and they'd be able to easily understand it as much as someone with an infection control background would. Um, and, I, and I think that this, for me, this, this paper set out four really important elements of cleaning it talks about four different things you really need to consider when thinking about a a program for cleaning risk assessment and i think all these you know we could explore a bit more but risk assessment a disinfection and equipment um so i guess that's about you know the the type of product you might use in the approach the cleaning process so how to actually clean as well as training elements and then how do you assess um whether something's being cleaned or whether it is what the levels of cleanliness are in your institution. And for me, that's four, just four simple starting points for how to think about your, your program. The, the key is you have to have all four, you know, because I see plenty of papers saying this type of you know, disinfectant works or this type of feedback works. But actually, without the education and the motivation of, of staff, uh, you're not going to use your product or whatever it is correctly, and the feedback probably won't mean very much anyway if you're not being educated to think that this is uh, a, a good thing to do and therefore motivated to perform it in a, in a correct manner, yeah. really. That's right. I completely agree. The, and the authors make that quite clear that these are sort of four things that are e- not equally important but all need to be done in tandem. And um, and they start off with talking about risk assessment and it's something you know we talk about a lot in infection control because there's so many shades of grey and um, really it is down often to the individual risks that you're facing on on any given day Um, and in terms of the risk assessment the authors describe three key elements they talk about 
the patient risk profile. Um, they talk about the surface risk profile and the pathogen risk profile. And, and they go and talk about those things. So the patient risk profile is about, you know, the, the, the patient, obviously, and the vulnerability of that particular person or patient or resident. You know, it's very different, um, for example, in an ICU or, um, you know, or, or an area ward that might have critically immunocompromised patients compared to perhaps someone's resident in, a, in essentially their own home. So, you know, I think that's, that's a really important starting point, thinking about the patient and what are their risks as a starting point. But of course, that can change um, quite rapidly, can't it? it can, the, the risk for a particular patient, one minute they're in a care home, next minute they're in the accident department, and the next minute they could be in surgery, mm-hmm. and then they could be in critical care. and then So their risk profile can escalate very mm-hmm. rapidly and then decline quite mm-hmm. rapidly as well. So it's, that, that is, it's all pretty fluid, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I like about this risk profile, because these, these sort of three things, the patient, the surface, and the pathogen, they change. They change based on where the patient is in their care journey, if they're in a healthcare setting or if they're, or if they're outside that in more of a community-based setting. And, um, and, and so, you know, having this black and white approach to infection control is problematic for exactly those reasons. Um, so one of the other things I talk about in the risk assessment is the surface risk profile. And, um, and that's, that's a really important concept too. You know, we have items that are high touch and low touch, for example, in, in different settings. And the risk as it, as it relates to the patient is very different. You know, bed rails that are frequently touched, um, shared medical equipment, it's very different to a wall in a in a in a patient area, for example, and even and 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 even the those risk profiles of surfaces would change. So you know, if you think about an ED apartment where people may be constantly opening and shutting curtains um, multiple multiple times uh, for the same person, compared to an area that um, might be an open ward or might be. Um, a resident area where you walk in through a couple of doors, it, it's very different. Um, so again, it's it's about the context um, for which you, you're talking about. So I mean, if you go back to on on the Spalding criteria, which was you know high risk, low risk. Well, low risk can be something like the bed rail because it's not in contact with mucous membranes or sterile areas, but actually it's very close to the patient and it's touched extremely frequently and can, as you've shown in some of your work, harbour pathogens. So it's it's not no risk, but people do tend to think of low risk as no risk. Therefore, I don't need to really worry about it. And yet, a a wall is low risk, as a bed rail is low risk. But how often do you touch the wall? Not very often. How often do you touch the bed rail? Well, according to Ritala and colleagues, that's the most frequently touched item in the whole of a ward area. So it's it's again constantly changing. Uh, absolutely right. So there's there's critical and semi-critical type items you know so if we're talking about something that comes a piece of equipment that comes into contact with a mucous membrane it's a it's a very different risk profile to something that's um, coming into contact with intact skin and and then on top of that you have this oh how frequently is it touched so there's there's two dynamics to the to the surface risk profile um and the third element of the risk assessment the authors discuss is the pathogen risk profile and again we can't treat all infections the same or oh, sorry all pathogens i should say the same 
we know that different pathogens behave very differently. We see that with uh, COVID, for example, and and um, uh, and you know other pathogens survive for months uh, in the environment. Some pathogens are extremely difficult to remove from clinical areas, and then we think about biofilm formation too. Um, whereas some pathogens may not survive very well outside their host for very long periods of time. And so, you know, there's not necessarily a necessity to, to think about the longevity issue of, of pathogens in some instances. The, the problem is you don't, of course, know what pathogens you've got apart from, unless you're A, screening, or B, you've got lots of clinical specimens. So you wouldn't necessarily know what pathogens you've got kicking around your organisation anyway, unless you're really going looking for them. And, and you're right about some organisms surviving for long periods and you just can't get shift them. I mean, Acinetobacter is a bit like your mother-in-law. Once it moves in, it's very difficult to get rid of it. So, you know, there are a number of pathogens that are really difficult to shift because of dry surface biofilm. We've seen that with Candida auris, etc. Um, so that was the risk assessment that the authors talk about. The authors then talk about sort of disinfection and equipment more generally. And um, I guess here, this is a great source of variation across hospitals in the world too, whether we have a whole range of different um, products, I guess, and disinfectants, for want of better words, uh, that are available. You know, we have alcohol, chlorine, hydrogen peroxide, parasitic acid. We have um, approaches using vaporized hydrogen peroxide, UV. We have wipes that are impregnated with disinfectants and detergents. Um, And so... You know, it's a real mixed bag, and it's a matter of thinking about how do the what's the evidence behind each of these um, relative to what you're trying to achieve, relative to the other things that we talked about in the risk assessment, and then also considering things like ease and feasibility of use of of some of these too. Some of them um, might be used as supplementary, and some of them might be used as routine things that are put in place because they're easier to implement. So. Um, a whole raft of things, I guess, to to consider in terms of equipment and disinfection approaches. Yeah, I mean, the table in the appendices is particularly helpful because it highlights the different properties very concisely of all the different range of disinfectants and what they're good at and what they're not so good at and what's their compatibility like and that sort of thing. I mean, you know, you... you as a, The problem is you might, as an infection control practitioner, want the whole of the armoury available to you but actually then you've got to train everybody on how to use everything and your procurement department are not really going to want you to have 16 different types of you know variations on the theme so it's it's working out actually what is the most reasonable way of getting a reliable uh, and effective decontamination service running within the organization absolutely and I think, Man, you in the past have done a nice little talk on selection of products, and perhaps that's something we'll explore another day. But um, I've, I've heard you give a, a talk at a couple of different conferences in, and about all the considerations about choosing a product, and you touched on a couple there in terms of compatibility with not just um, chairs and things like that, but also medical equipment. And conversely, how, how easy some of this medical equipment is to actually clean, even if you were to try to attempt to clean it. Um, and so probably that's uh, I don't know probably maybe another discussion for another day but uh. well compatibility is a real can of worms I mean 
I remember a couple of years ago chatting to a chap called Stephen Doge um, from one of the uh, companies that makes ventilators, and he was telling me there was there was something like thirty different polymers in the uh, in the device, and so you've got to make sure that whatever you use on it is going to be compatible with all thirty of them, or the manufacturer has to be be pretty confident that the plastics he's putting into something is going to be compatible with a number of different disinfectants and the, and the problem that they have and the problem we have is one day we might be saying okay it's fine detergent water is fine here uh, oh hang on we need to clean this so then we switch to alcohol and then a couple of years later we go along to chlorine and then we think oh hang on maybe we need something a bit more pokey so we're going to use paracetic acid and then we switch to well we're going to go back to something a bit lower level we're going to use crotonium ammonium compounds on it so you've got a whole range of different disinfectants being used on a surface and one of them's going to get the blame for damaging it who knows what it was it's <laughs> it's a real can of worms that one yeah I have to say. absolutely um the third element the authors talk about in their paper is cleaning processes and adequate training and um i think that's pretty self-explanatory but um it it has been shown now that uh, it, these two things are particularly important. We need to have staff adequately trained in what to do and, and also how to clean. And there's some great work by um, Steffi Dancer and, and her colleagues um, that really try to simplify how do you clean. And in this paper, again, there's this, there is a, a bit of an overview of some of the principles of cleaning um, in terms of the actual process of cleaning itself, using an S-shape um, and, and, and a whole range of different other measures. I'm not, I won't go through them because quite a few. And, and it's a really nice summary in this article, but there's more detail that they refer to in, um, in Dancer and Kramer's work in this space. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always think education and training go hand in hand. So training is the practical skill. And you've mentioned doing the S shape and you know and, and knowing what product to use in the in the physical way, but I think the education to actually so that people understand why they're doing it, and what's the importance of it because you can you can teach anybody a physical skill, but unless you teach them why they need to do it, they aren't always going to perform that physical skill in the way that they were trained. And you see people cut corners very frequently in in healthcare, and that's. To me, that's because they don't understand why they've been taught to do it in that way. Uh, so it's it's not just education, uh, sorry, training. It's it's education as well, and it's the education that motivates people to implement the training well. I think. Yeah, look, and that's been my experience um, as well, working with environmental services in many different hospitals, and. Um, it's really important they are a critical element of patient safety and when you start to talk to them about just how important their role is and why it's important in in, preve in preventing infections for patients um you really do see a, a positive response and 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 rightly so that it is true they play an absolutely critical role in patient safety it's a, it's a very under forgotten area and the other key element we talked about training and education the key element is communication yeah well actually one of the things i felt was missing from this is that that the people who perform the the cleaning and the physical decontamination are often not valued and how the organization should value them and show them that they're valued and have you know have the the, the good work that they uh, undertake 
respected and acknowledged for the critical role in patient safety. You know, I, I used to say to the cleaning staff when I worked there, you know, you're doing as important a job as anybody in this organisation to keep patients safe. This is a patient safety role that you're undertaking. Uh, and I, that's one thing that I was a little bit missing. You know, we're, we're educating people, we're training them, but actually valuing them and going around and saying, do you know what, this is really good. Because you can give feedback, but often it's you haven't done that rather than you have done that. And I, I think that the, the way you phrase things, you know, we're doing really well here and we've got an opportunity to do even better. It's better than this is only 60% compliant. This isn't very good, which unfortunately is how a lot of feedback is given. Yeah, I agree with that, man. And perhaps that was in, inherent in their sort of communication element and, and uh, reference in the paper, but I could be teased out a bit more. Well, you know, one of the things with the REACH study that, that we did was exactly that. Um, there was recognition of the importance of cleaning and really promoting the value of cleaning throughout the organisations that participated, right through to, to, to the senior management level, and recognising just how many um, you know, frequent touch surfaces are, are cleaned each day by our, our, our cleaning staff and called various forms across across the world, of course, but um, and and really just how well generally they do and and. Um, and rewarding um, positive um, and improving practice and and recognizing that so um, that is critically important uh, critically important element the last area that the authors talk about is the fourth area is the assessment of cleanliness and this is um, again always I wouldn't say a controversial area but it's a it's a it's a complex area so um, we have various ways to assess cleanliness in the environment. And I would say that each of those have positives and negatives. And there's been papers, if you're really interested in this, there are papers that have written a bit, bit more about positives and negatives, advantages and disadvantages to each of these approaches. But you know, visual inspection, um, clearly aesthetics are important from, from a patient point of view, but really um, are very subjective and um, something can look good but not actually be clean or has never been cleaned um di- direct observation of of supervision of of stuff so actually looking at the process and by which cleaning occurs there's microbiological sampling um and that's of course got pros and cons to it too i think the biggest uh there's i think there's a real role for microbiological sampling particularly in the context of outbreaks or um perhaps um whole genome sequencing um you know, but it can provide a bit of a false sense of security because you're really only swabbing as a surface area, what, um, 0.01% of a surface area in a room. So um, the likelihood of missing something is quite high <laughs> if it did exist. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've got to be honest, when I hear people say, oh, yeah, we're just doing visual checks, if you're just using your eyes to check for standards of cleanliness and hygiene that to me says you don't want to know the real result because if you look properly you're going to find it isn't anything like what your visual checks are telling you you know if you're going around saying it's 95 percent on the cleaning score and you probably think in your organization your hand hygiene compliance is 98 percent as well but meanwhile back on planet earth neither of those things are actually true 
and it's unless you do some sort of some sort of quantitative method of actually uh, doing an honest appraisal and then not taking that in a punitive way taking that as a okay this is where we're at and we don't go around kicking people because uh, it's often our fault that we haven't trained them properly and we haven't given them the tools to do the job you know you you know you've recently published on barriers to uh, effective cleaning and decontamination so it's an organization that honestly looks at their standards and then looks at what the barriers are and put something in place to get a genuine improvement. Because if you go around and say this hospital is 95% compliant with, the, with our cleaning score, where are you going to get some investment to actually improve things? Because nobody's going to give you a bean if you're already 95% of the way there. Yeah. And, and you know, when you think about microbiological sampling on, on that front too, uh, you know, just because you find a pathogen is that unexpected too i mean if you're going to and because so the timing of those types of things whether they be microbiological sampling we haven't talked about atp but there's another approach with atp um visual inspections or or um other measures that the timing of these types of things is very important you know if you're swabbing in an area where there's still patients you hopefully you will find some pathogens they're shedding bacteria all the time so um so but you know the question then becomes is that a risk? Is that a problem in the context of the other things that we've already mentioned? Uh, we touched on, I just mentioned ATP. Of course, ATP is another way to measure um, cleanliness, and that has some some, um, some advantages and disadvantages associated with it too. Uh, and another way, of course, is the use of um, UV fluorescent uh, gel um, and, and, and markers to, to look to see whether a surface has actually been physically cleaned. And, um, and so there's a whole range of different approaches that, um, that the authors talk about there. Um, I think personally, it's probably a combination of, of these that needs to be done. Um, and, and these linked back in some way, not just in a, not in a punitive form, but linked back in some way to provide positive reinforcement to then link and inform um, future training um, for staff as well. Yeah, I mean, I've never met ever a member of the cleaning staff who didn't want to do a really good job so finding a way of feeding them back information which supports them uh, and uh, gives them an indication of how well they're doing but actually shows them oh actually do you know what? I, I am missing that and I didn't realize I was I think that that's really powerful but it's, it's not done in a because if you're going to say this is you've missed half the room all you're going to do is go through the five stages of grief where somebody says, I didn't have the right gear, I don't believe your assessment result, and all the defences go up immediately. So I think often the way, the, you know, the communication is absolutely crucial, and you showed that in the, in the reach yeah. down. So I guess the other important thing that this article highlights is it does provide the evidence base for some of the things we've talked about. So we've sort of skirted over the issues here, and we've mentioned a few authors here and there and a few papers, but there is evidence underpinning... Um, what we've just discussed and so i think if you go to that article you can see some of the evidence underpinning that and and you know we we've the phil carling for example there's lots of work that he did, did around the the role of feedback in that case using fluorescent gel um uh, and there have been other more recent studies that have shown improvements in actual outcomes based on some of the different approaches that we've seen um, whether they be different cleaning approaches, disinfectant approaches, or approaches that have used um, uh, put a communication framework around it and, and feedback to staff. So uh, I, I would certainly 
people who are interested in this could certainly get a lot more information and, uh, and evidence from, the, from this paper as a starting point, which is going back right back to the start. Why did I like this paper? Because I think it's a really nice overview for people who want to understand the broad topics around cleaning and setting up a cleaning program. And then you can delve into a bit more detail as you need to um, for your organisation. Yeah, and I, I, going back to my earlier point, I think it's the sort of paper you could give to not just an environmental service manager, but other managers and, and your finance director who really doesn't necessarily want to invest in cleaning and decontamination. And this, you know, He's almost written your business case for you because you can say, look, we've done this, we've got the right idea with the products, but we're not really getting the training done and we haven't got feedback mechanisms. So maybe we need to work on these areas because all four things are there. It's just like a bundle which is what you showed with the REACH study. And so conflict alert, we've referred to the REACH um, paper as well. And uh, I was uh, uh, the lead, lead author on, on, the, on a paper called the REACH study. Um, one of the key things that you just touched on there was cost effectiveness. And Nicole White and, and from the REACH team um, has published a cost effectiveness paper uh, related to cleaning. That was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases. So if you do get... Um, someone in your organization who's talking about cost, then I would commend you to look at that paper because what that paper shows is that investment in routine cleaning, including training, auditing, and feedback to staff is cost-effective for your organization. And so um, there it is in transparent black and white for people to be able to, to use um, as, a, as, a, as a supporting mechanism to say, don't cut cleaning staff, don't cut... Um, the need for training and feedback. In fact, investment in this is cost effective. And actually, the other way to put that is if people are not going to invest, you can say, well, okay, I have told you what is likely to happen. And if we come back here in two years and things have gone wrong, I'll be highlighting that I did show you all of this information beforehand. And based on your decision, we haven't gone down the route that I suggested at the, t- at the time. And here's the outcome. So that's, that's often a useful way of phrasing things as well. We'll be back. We'll be back. And speaking of we'll be back, Martin, we will be back with another podcast. Nice um, segue. <laughs> I was, oh, that's as good as you get from me. <laughs> yeah, nice segue, Brett. Well, thanks. Thanks, Martin. Uh, always good chatting. Yeah, I've enjoyed it, as usual. And um, until next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.